stuff. So I worked at Northwestern around 1974-75. Okay. So you would have been there like my senior year. Yep. Okay. So, and I, I have to tell you, I was like a really bad secretary. <laughs> Welcome to Trust Hacker, the podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle and seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason. Welcome to Trust Hacker, where we explore the tricks and traps used by the country's best elder and special needs law attorneys when tackling complex trust, tax, or other practice issues. Trust hacking is the term I use to describe any shortcut, skill, or insight that will help you crush it in your practice. In other words, a trust hack is anything that solves a trust or tax or other practice problem in an inspirational or ingenious way. My guest for this episode is the current president of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, so you very likely know who it is. A partner at Schenck, Price, Smith & King in Florham Park, Paramus, and Sparta, New Jersey, she's received just about every type of recognition that an elder law or special needs law attorney could be credited with in New Jersey. After graduating from the State University of New York at Stony Brook at the ripe old age of 20, she worked in a variety of settings, including secretarial, until deciding to go to law school and graduating from Seton Hall's law school, cum laude. A NALA fellow and a member of the NALA Council of Advanced Practitioners, she is a NALA fixture finishing up a term as president. For the 1% who may not know who I am talking about, in this episode, we're going to hack... Shirley Whitenick. Madam President, welcome to the Trust Hacker. Thank you, Bob. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's really great having you here, Shirley, and I think this is going to be very interesting. So why don't we just jump into this? I did a little snooping around in your background, getting ready <laughs> for this interview. And it's something that struck me because you and I did something very similar. After you did your undergraduate work, it looks like you did other things for 10 years before you went to law school. That is correct. What did you do? Well, so the first thing that I did is uh, I got married and had two children. And um, I actually had graduated from college when I was 20. And um, I had graduated with a teaching uh, degree. I was going to be an English teacher. And uh, I ended up getting married when I was 21. And then I had my first child when I was 23 and my second one at 27. So I had a number of um, uh, part-time types of uh, jobs and full-time jobs that had nothing to do with a legal career at all. I substitute taught. I uh, I managed a um, Hallmark greeting card store that my parents owned. Um, I did. I was a part-time secretary at Northwestern University. I had actually lived in Chicago for several years. In Evanston. Yes. That's where yes. I went undergrad. Yep. So I was actually a uh, secretary for a metallurgical professor. In the Tech Institute there on Sheridan Road? Yep. Okay. And I did some uh, technical typing and that sort of thing. And so 
uh, it wasn't until I was about 30 that the idea of uh, law school uh, came up. So where did that come from? Well, so I was um, uh, going through a period in my marriage that was kind of rocky, and I didn't know whether uh, we were going to stay together or not, but I decided my uh, former husband at the time was also a, um, he was a student, he was getting a PhD in uh, biochemistry, and so I started thinking that uh, I might have to do something full-time. And my ex-husband always told me that I was very good at arguing. So <laughs> I thought that uh, becoming a lawyer could be a, uh, a good career. And uh, so that's the direction that I headed into. It's not like uh, my parents were lawyers or anything like that. So I decided to uh, take my LSAT and, uh, and go to law school. And it was actually sort of like a calling for me. So you went to law school, got out of law school, and became a litigator. Yeah, so the first thing that I did after I graduated from law school, right before I went to law school, <clears throat> excuse me, I actually was, uh, one of my part-time gigs was selling real estate as a realtor, and I decided that that really was not what kind of law I wanted to practice. And so I decided to become a litigator, but um, the first thing that I decided to do was to clerk for a judge um, in the state of New Jersey, which is a common thing that many people who go to law school in New Jersey decide to do. So I clerked for a judge who was in the New Jersey Appellate Division for a year, and then I got a job um, as a litigator in a firm that, um, at that time, back in the uh, mid-1980s was considered to be a large firm in New Jersey. So you spent, what, eight, ten years as one of those contentious litigators, and then <laughs> somewhere along the line, I was going to ask you, did you become an elder law attorney, or did you really become a litigator that focused on elder law issues? Yeah, so uh, what happened was, um, in my old firm, uh, Gary Mazart, who was one of the first elder law attorneys um, in the country, he came to our firm. He was an elder law and estate uh, and trust attorney. And so because he had guardianships and fair hearings and that sort of thing, um, they had wanted, my firm had wanted a litigator to supervise those kinds of cases because. Uh, Gary was really a transactional planner. He wasn't a litigator. And so I was assigned uh, to do that. And I really loved that work and started to get involved in guardianships and see our hearings. And then um, around that time, uh, back in the early 1990s, when OBRA 1993 came into law, I realized that um, we could do a lot in terms of trust reformations for people who didn't have special needs trusts but really needed them. And so I became one of the first attorneys in New Jersey to start uh, filing uh, trust reformation actions to establish uh, special needs trusts under 
uh, over 93. And that just sort of segued into really becoming a true uh, elder law attorney. So um, I still do litigation, but I also do planning um, and uh, just, you know, the whole gamut. That's interesting. You were talking about the trust reformations under OBRA. Uh, and I guess we're dating ourselves if we remember OBRA. I used to tell people, you know what OBRA stands for? And they go, oh, yeah, omnibus budget. And I said, no, 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 it stands for oh boy regulations again. I mean, every, every time they change the law, uh, take the most major recent one, DRA, you and I both heard people talking about, oh, it's the end of elder law planning as we know it. And uh, what are we going to do? But there's really an opportunity there. Yes, yes. Um, I think that special needs trusts and that kind of work um, is going to be with us for quite a while. So are you still a litigator at heart? You do a fair amount of it. And up until Naila started sucking up a lot of your time, you were teaching it at Stetson. Right. Uh, So, well, our friend Frank Johns recently told me that he thought there were too ma- too many Medicaid planners and not enough litigators. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's I think that there always is um, room for more advocacy and more litigation in this area of practice. And back in the uh, when the DRA was first coming down the pike, Nala had seen the need to uh, train and get more elder law attorneys involved in litigation. And um, there was a certain amount of resistance, I think, from many elder law attorneys who just don't feel comfortable uh, being in court or uh, litigating, hard litigation, if you will. Uh, but I think that there is a, a certainly a need, and, and we do see that more people have uh, come into, um, into that field. I think that in terms of Medicaid planning, the planning opportunities in certain states become more and more restrictive, and the rules are so uh, loosey-goosey. Uh, lots of times we feel like we're practicing in the Wild West, that we really don't know what the rules are because they're not necessarily written down. And that leads to more litigation because we just don't know really uh, what we can do and what we can't do. While you were talking just then, it made me think of, uh, you know, when it comes to litigation and potentially litigation against the states, and I know you've been involved in some of that, I'll never forget a state regulator privately to me he and i getting into a discussion and he finally said bob i know you're right so sue us (laughs) knowing fully well Well, i think that that's probably not going to (laughs) happen um yeah i you know i look the, the the state uh folks are people doing their jobs they're taking their uh, their orders, and uh, sometimes the people who are working for the state don't necessarily personally agree with the philosophies and the rules uh, that are coming down the pike. Some of them are very helpful, some not so helpful, depending on, you know, who they are, but certainly there is uh, 
often I need to litigate back in the olden days, I found that the state really did not want to get embroiled in litigation. And not that they, they do, but I find that now they are more used to uh, being sued and not so adverse to that. So there's you know, plenty of opportunities, but I've also seen the government come out with positions that are just clearly antithetical to what the statutes or the rules or the case law says. And so uh, we sometimes find very good results when we go to court. And for that reason, NALA is, um, has really supported litigation through the NALA Foundation and has been encouraging people who find themselves in litigation to come to the foundation if they need assistance, whether it's for an amicus brief or whether um, it's to pay for costs that are involved in bringing this litigation. Okay. Well, and here I am speaking to the president of NALA, and, and as we are recording this, we've got, we've got, what, maybe another six weeks to go, end of May. Um. How'd that happen? Uh, I, I noticed in looking at your background that you started off just volunteering to serve on a, an SIG. I forget which one it was, and it seemed to just kind of gather steam from there. Yeah, uh, I'm not exactly sure how it happened either. I did very early on. I joined NALA in 1995, and around that time, um, maybe a year or so later, I had seen a, a call for volunteers, and uh, I decided I wanted to get more involved in NALA. So I actually, at that juncture, had joined the Public Policy Committee, and um, I didn't stick around that long in that particular um, committee, but then I did get involved afterwards with the um, the Guardianship Special Interest Group, that's what they were called at the time, SIGs, and the Advocacy Litigation uh, SIG. And I became the, I was on the steering committee of both. I became the chair of the Advocacy Litigation SIG it's a, with a small um, special interest group that uh, was a little different than the other SIGs because other than practice management, the other things were more substance-oriented. This was more procedure-oriented. And then uh, two things happened in the middle of right around like 2007, 2008. I had um, been nominated to be a NALA fellow, and I also had been nominated to be on the NALA board. And um, that's how both of those happened. So I really enjoyed the uh, the board experience. And then um, when I was in a position to actually become an officer, because I had served two terms as a board member, I had been um, diagnosed with breast cancer. And at that point, I was very reluctant to throw my hat into the ring because I wanted to concentrate on my um, treatment. Luckily for me, I didn't have to undergo chemotherapy. I just um, had surgery and, and radiation. And so I was able to 
focus my attention uh, back to NALA and, and back to my work. And, uh, and so then I was nominated, and that's how that happened. And hopefully you've got the cancer lick now. It's far enough yes, in the past. Yes, I, I, I am, thank goodness, a, uh, considered a survivor. It's been over five years. And uh, hopefully everything will be uh, smooth sailing. Good deal. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp, an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. Sign up for a free membership at TrustChimp.com. Gain access to educational membership materials. Have the latest newsletters and articles delivered to your inbox. And stay in the loop on the latest offerings at TrustChimp. That's TrustChimp.com. Now, the way Nayla seems to work it is it's not like you suddenly found out one day you were going to be president. I mean, you pretty well know it's coming, what, three, four, five years out? Yeah, so what happens is um, when you become an officer of NALA, and typically uh, you're going to become secretary first. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's the typical progression. But you are told in no uncertain terms that it's not a lockstep. So each way, except when you're president-elect, you're going to be reevaluated by the um, reconstituted nominating committee, and uh, they will look to see, you know, what will happen next in terms of whether you'll then uh, move on and become the treasurer or the vice president or, or what have you. The concept is, I guess, that when you become an officer of NALA, there is a thought that you would um, actually be able to fulfill the leadership position of president, but it's by no means a done deal. So this past year, I can only guess, but how much of your time did being president of NALA actually suck up? Well, it's... (laughs) Um, probably, uh, quite a bit. I have several conference calls that I do every week. So for example, um, I am on the phone, uh, at least once a week with NALA's public policy managers and our public policy, uh, co-chairman, I have other conference calls that I have to be on, executive committee. Um, Sometimes we have board meetings that are during the year when we have things to take up by telephone. Um, There's a little bit of traveling involved. There's uh, board meetings. Um, There's uh, other things that I do in terms of uh, writing a column for the Mail and News. So it it takes up a considerable amount of time. I am very fortunate that I'm in a firm where I have a great deal of support from other attorneys and staff people, and uh, my partners have been very encouraging about uh, what I've done, but I've been able to essentially keep up with my workload as well, uh, but, but it does consume a lot of time. So what's going to happen on the morning of June 1st? <laughs> when you wake up and go, hey. 
Well, one of the interesting things is um, I've actually just been elected as a trustee of the New Jersey State Bar Association. And so I'm going to start that position in May. And uh, as I mentioned before, I will continue to be on the Naylor board. And as the um, past president, I will be chairing the nominating committee uh, for the upcoming year. So I have that obligation as well. Okay. I have a lot of listeners who are not NALA members. I have learned that there are a fair number of estate planning attorneys who are curious, some that just drop in. There are even some folks out there that call themselves elder law attorneys who are not NALA members. Do you have any words of wisdom for them? So I think that joining NALA is very, very important for people who really want to do more than dabbling in elder law because of a couple of issues. First of all, the networking opportunities that one gets through NALA and the referral of business um, is, is enormous. And I found that to be so well before I became active as a board member in NALA. And that's because we have people from all over the country who we live in a very mobile society. We have a lot of people traveling around and people are always looking for attorneys in, in other states. So being a member of NALA is a way of having other people from other states and other locales get to know who you are. You don't get that from being in a state bar association or even um, part of uh, a local chapter of NALA. Now, in order to be part of a local chapter of NALA, you have to belong to the national NALA. And one of the benefits of being in a local chapter is that local chapters of NALA can do things that the elder law section of bar associations can't do. We can, for example, lobby much more quickly. We don't have to go through the board of trustees of the bigger organization in order to do that. So uh, there's lots of advantages to being a NALA chapter member in your own state. There's also an educational opportunity that you don't get <clears throat> anywhere else because uh, people who are not your direct competitors are going to be more likely to want to assist you and mentor you to the extent that um, you need that. And also what happens in one state oftentimes is going to happen in another state. So it's really important to know what the federal law is. Special needs trusts have their own state quirks. Elder law planning has its own state quirks, but it all emanates from federal law. And it's really important to know what that uh, law is. And I think that being a NALA member is one of the best ways to get that overall education and um, business referral potential. Let's shift gears here a little bit. What is the one thing that you surely do that you feel has contributed the most to your success? I think that the thing that I do um, the most 
is I listen really, really carefully to my clients in terms of what their goals are. I don't try to superimpose my views um, on someone else, and I try to effectuate whatever plan it is that uh, fits my client. So I, my clients have a sense that I am going to be with them every step of the way, that I understand what they're going through, that I'm going to hold my, their hand, so that even though I consider myself to be a pit bull um, in a courtroom when I'm dealing with my clients, I'm going to be uh, compassionate and, and holding their hand. And I think that's very important because that's what people are really looking for, I think, in this area uh, with their attorneys. They want to know that you are going to be standing with them and doing whatever you can to help them. Well, not to get too personal here, but what is the worst experience that you have had as a lawyer, at least that you're willing to admit to? <laughs> um, I, you know, that, that's uh, a difficult um, question. I, I think that sometimes uh, the most difficult thing that I, I've had to do as uh, the worst thing that's happened to me as a lawyer is to get into a situation that I can't uh, easily get out of. For example, I may have said yes um, to a client that I shouldn't have taken to begin with. I may not have been able to manage expectations properly. And so I might have gotten into a situation that I can't necessarily easily get out of. And that raises an interesting issue that I've talked to a number of guests of mine about. Do you have some sort of informal screen for clients? In other words, uh, even if there is someone there that technically you could probably help, is there a point where you say to yourself, Shirley, we don't need to be taking this person? Yes. So that has a lot to do with. Um, I'll just give you an example. Uh, I took a client who called me up and screamed at me for about an hour. He was very, very frustrated uh, with the situation that he found himself in. And he was uh, basically yelling and screaming. And uh, I took him as a client, and then I found that he was yelling and screaming at me, yelling and screaming at his staff, at my staff, rather. And uh, that became very uh, difficult for everybody. And uh, that was a client that I wish I had not taken. So I listened to demeanor, and I listened to whether I think this person is going to pay attention to what I have to say and whether this person is going to be willing to uh, listen to my advice. I also won't take clients who have an expectation of something that I know that I can't accomplish um, at the end. And I'll tell people right up front, I don't think I can, you know, get this for you. Uh, so, 
you know, those are people that I don't necessarily want. I also try to shy away from clients who tell me that they've had three other lawyers working on the case. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, there, there's a reason for that. And usually they'll tell you there's something wrong with the attorney that was handling the case. But many times I know who that attorney is and they were good attorneys. So I'm wary of uh, those kinds of uh, situations as well. Well, you've got some grandchildren, and I, I don't know, they may be a little young, but if one of them is about ready to graduate from law school, what one piece of advice would you give him or her? Well, I actually have a son who's a lawyer, and uh, I told my son when he was contemplating going to law school that he certainly shouldn't do it for me and that it's something that he really uh, wants to do. It's not, it's not TV. It's not a glamorous, uh, necessarily glamorous job. It's hard work. And uh, so you really need to, um, to want to do it. And you need to know what area of law you are suited for in terms of, you know, what you're going to choose uh, to do. So we now find ourselves in a situation, it wasn't like this, I think, when we were going to law school, but we now find ourselves in a situation where uh, students are taking on a lot of debt that's going to take a very long time to uh, pay back and not everybody gets the, uh, the glamorous, you know, big law jobs. And so you may find yourself in a situation where you're not making as much as you hoped that, that you were. So where I'm going with this is you don't do it for the money. You do it for the love of the job. As Nayla president, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge facing elder law attorneys over the next five, ten years? So I think there's a couple of things. I think there's going to um, be continual cutbacks and restrictions in terms of the kind of planning uh, that can be done. We see it in the um, in the house right now. There are uh, ideas on how to further restrict Medicaid planning. Um, there's been discussions about extending the look back period from five years. Uh, so I think that's going to be on the horizon. I also think that there is going to be more competition that attorneys are going to have um, from uh, the Internet as well as from uh, other uh, types of positions like uh, a lawyer technician type of people who are sort of akin to nurse practitioners. So I think we're going to see... Um, that sort of thing coming up more and more as well. My name is Henry Lewandowski. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney in Havertown, Pennsylvania, which is right near Philadelphia. I attended a Trust Chimp Summit in Philadelphia recently, and I had a great experience. I've attended a lot of CLE covering trusts over my 20 years in this practice area, and I think Bob's approach is great, and it's the best I've ever experienced. Uh, Bob combines knowledge of the subject matter with a lot of humor and passion, if it's possible to use a term like passion, 
for such a confounding subject as trust law, but maybe that's where uh, it helps unconfound things. Anyway, I thought the Trust Champ seminar was very rewarding, and I've convinced my partner to attend the next summit, and then we plan to, to both attend the second summit later this year because, of course, everything is better the second time around. You mentioned something that um, I've, I've been hearing a lot more lately, and that is the possibility of extending the look-back period, but can they be serious? I'm, I think of the logistics of it and wonder, it's hard enough now with five-year look-back period. What if they pushed it out to seven, or year, seven years or so ago? You know, I don't know if I could come up with my records from seven years ago. Well, that is going to be a, a problem, but yeah, they're really serious about it. And, and, you know, what's really sad about this is whenever you see the GAO report, um, the overwhelming amount of people who are receiving Medicaid benefits are doing it without the assistance of lawyers. They're not divesting their assets. They are people who actually spent down their assets on, on their own care and their own uh, personal issues, but there is that philosophy that is driving uh, that train that there's entirely too many people who are taking advantage, if you will, of the system. And uh, so I think they are serious about it. I think it will be problematic in terms of uh, getting those records, but that's the idea is to make it harder for people to apply. I think there's going to be more talk of grants and other things that uh, can be done to further reduce the ability to engage in Medicaid planning. We know that they're talking about uh, changing the rules for annuities. We know that the VA is planning to uh, change its rules to make that kind of planning harder. And I think that's going to be a trend that we're going to continue to see in the next few years. That approach, that legislative, even administrative approach, drives me absolutely nuts. That uh, instead of trying to figure out some rational financing mechanism for, for example, the long-term care uh, needs and the long-term care system, they attack the problem simply by, you know, tightening the rules and whacking budgets. That doesn't do anything to fix the underlying problem. That's exactly right. It, it, it actually does not. Um, but I think they're going to uh, keep trying because it does have some appeal to someone's constituents, if you will. Um, and, and that's interesting, too, because there's a lot of people in, uh, you know, these various walks of life, judges, uh, legislators, or what have you, who have engaged in Medicaid planning uh, for members of their family or for themselves. So it's not, uh, you know, something that doesn't affect their lives either. It certainly does. But that kind of threat is going to continue and it behooves Nala to be on top of that at all times to understand where the threats are coming from and to head them off at the pass as early as possible. That reminds me of a couple of years ago, I had a legislator in my office as a client talking about planning for his mother, and I couldn't resist it. I said, uh, you got a reputation of being kind of a budget hawk, and you, you've said some things. 
why are you here talking to me? And he said, oh, but now we're talking about my mother. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly right. Uh, so when it you know, comes to their families, uh, they are often uh, more sympathetic. You know, again, uh, some are, some aren't. But that's definitely coming down the pike. And, and we're going to see that more and more. And you practice in New Jersey, and from what I understand, you practice in a rough neighborhood. I mean, New Jersey's pretty tough on trusts and life estates and other planning techniques, aren't they? Yes. In fact, um, the easiest planning techniques in New Jersey is to tell people to move to New York or Pennsylvania. Let me ask you this. What is the one thing that elder law attorneys do that drives Shirley Absolutely nuts. So what drives me absolutely crazy about what elder law attorneys often do is use a cookie-cutter approach, a one-size-fits-all. And that's very dangerous and very rarely um, works. People try to come up with systems that they can squeeze all their clients to so all their trusts look alike regardless of what the circumstances are that people are going through um, no deviation, and uh, lots of mistakes happen uh, using that approach. You've litigated countless trust and estates and guardianship issues. If you could give us, and I'm including me in there, us planners, the non-litigator types, us trust guys, some advice, what would it be? Well, I... (laughs) I always look at planning in terms of worst case scenario of what can happen if the plan isn't doing uh, what it's supposed to do. In, in other words, what I'm trying to say is I look at planning through the eyes of a litigator. I think about the kinds of issues that I have litigated and the reason that these issues are often litigated is because of uh, sloppy drafting or um, a lack of understanding of how uh, things work. So I think it's important for planners to think ahead and take things to its logical conclusion. Am I putting myself into a situation where I can be sued for malpractice or some sort of ethical uh, violation in terms of what I'm doing? Am I putting myself in a situation where I'm going to cross the line because I want to help my clients so much? And uh, my response, very a lot of times I'm litigating matters where an attorney who did the planning may not have gotten paid at all or may have gotten paid very, very little and it wasn't worth it um, for the type of trouble that they ended up getting themselves into. So... I would say planners should think like a litigator and make sure that they are dotting their I's and crossing their teeth. We were talking about legislation a moment ago, and something did occur to me. Have you heard anything on the SNT Fairness Act? Yeah, so the Special Needs Trust Fairness Act, um, as you know, was passed by the Senate. We have a number of sponsors, Republican sponsors, uh, as well as Democratic sponsors in the House. 
and uh, we believe that it is going to be um, included uh, in some sort of package uh, fairly soon. We're hoping that it will be done this year, although because we have an election year, obviously that's not the focus uh, of what the government is doing, but we think it does have a good chance of uh, being passed this year, and we're pushing as hard as we can to uh, to get this done as soon as possible. So don't give up hope. Not at all. In fact, uh, every week we're picking up more and more sponsors. And a lot of that has to do with grassroots attempts of people just contacting their local uh, congressperson and um, meeting up with them and explaining uh, what what this is and why, and we're not finding a lot of resistance in terms of sponsorship. It's just really a question of educating people. Before the same subcommittee, I think they were looking at, I forget the name of the act, uh, where they were going to tighten up on spousal annuities. Yes. Is, is anything more happening with that that you've heard? Uh, yeah. I mean, there really is that push still to count uh, a spousal annuity, um, and or at least half of the spousal annuity, and so this is something that we're also trying to monitor and deal with very closely. I just wondered if if there was going to be some effort to try and tie that to the SNT Fairness Act. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think they are going to uh, to do that. You went to the, uh, or participated in the White House Conference on Aging. I did. Did you get to be one of the ones that actually went there, or did you have to listen in on one of the remote sites? Or No, I was lucky enough to uh, get an invitation, and I went there in person. Okay. Where'd they, did they actually hold it in the White House? I wondered about that. Yeah, they did hold it in the White House, and it was a, uh, uh, a marvelous experience, actually. I bet. Uh, yep. To do that, yeah. I so they, they, a part of the conference actually took place in the East Room, which is where whenever you see uh, the president giving one of his press conferences that's usually in the White House, that's usually uh, where it takes place. And then another uh, part of the conference took place in a, a, uh, a different uh, part of the, uh, the building. So we, we got to see um, certain parts of the White House that you don't even necessarily get to see when you're on one of those private tours. So did the president and some of the cabinet secretaries actually come in and talk to you? They did. Uh, the president was there and gave a speech. Um, the uh, cabinet heads of uh, the Department of Transportation, Veterans Affairs, Human Services, uh, were all there. The Surgeon General was there. Uh, so they they uh, had a lot of um, high-level people who, uh, who had spoken at that conference. Okay. About, there were a little less than 200 people in the temple. Okay, so that's not so huge that you felt you were just a small little speck in a huge crowd packed shoulder to shoulder in the I was actually very lucky. I got to sit in the third row um, center, so I had a really good shot at everything. I was sort of like a groupie. I kind of 
showed up online a little earlier to get in. And uh, so I actually was the first person in the door. Hmm. Well, I'm sure that was a great experience. That was probably one of the highlights of your year as NALA president. It, it was. It was just fortunate because these conferences take place once every 10 years. And so I was just fortunate that it happened to be my year as president that the conference took place. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, uh, Shirley, but you're going to keep practicing law. Why don't you take a moment to tell the listeners something in particular you would want them to know, maybe about even how to find you if they've got a problem in New Jersey, want to associate you? Sure. So um, certainly if people have any questions that they want to ask about New Jersey or NALA uh, or anything of that nature, um, they can contact me at uh, my email address is sbw at spfk.com. Um, uh, we have three offices here in New Jersey, and uh, I am a very accessible uh, person, both by phone and by, uh, by email. So I'm always happy to uh, hear from people. If anybody, if any of your uh, listeners are NALA members and they want to get more involved in NALA, they certainly can reach out to me, and uh, I'll help them find the appropriate place that they want to uh, uh, to work at. And um, uh, like I said before, uh, I'm always willing to talk to anybody about almost anything. Okay. Well, Shirley, it's been great, and I am so happy you decided to join us here on The Trust Hacker. I thank you very, very much for having me here. We covered a lot, and there was good advice in there for all sorts of folks with differing interests. But Shirley told me one thing that I guess I really hadn't understood until now, and it could potentially involve a number of different situations I've been observing recently. For me, it was more of a, now I didn't know that moment. Here's my pick for the hack. For that reason, NALA is, um, has really supported litigation through the NALA Foundation and has been encouraging people who find themselves in litigation to come to the Foundation if they need assistance, whether it's for an amicus brief or whether um, it's to pay for costs that are involved in bringing this litigation. NALA can help which is all the more reason to be a NALA member if you're an elder law attorney. As Shirley described it, it is the Wild West out there. Rules are poorly drafted, and enforcement can vary on a whim. Plus, states are getting used to being sued and don't mind litigating. Facing down the regulators can be daunting. With their usually superior resources, it can be intimidating and a bit lonely. But NALA, particularly the NALA Foundation, can help. Especially if you have an issue that could adversely affect many other member clients, NALA be able, may be able to help with amicus briefs, advice, and perhaps even money. If you find yourself in a bind, don't forget the NALA Foundation. It just might have your back. Shirley, it was great talking to you. 
Thanks. If you haven't already, head over to TrustChimp.com and sign up for a free membership. It's the best way of staying current on what we're up to here at TrustChimp. And on that happy note, I'm out of here. TrustChimp.com. 